0: Welcome to the TIFF Podcast, where we interview registrars and former registrars about their experience on the UK Public Health Specialty Training Scheme. The aim of this podcast is that of offering a wide panoramic of what specialty training can offer while providing some suggestions and inspirations to those who are planning their next placement or would like to train in public health. Our episode today is the second of a series dedicated to advocacy and political activism during training. Last month, we interviewed a trade union representative from the BMA, Kitty Mohan, and today we have instead a pure politician, Suzanne Bartington, a trainee in the West Midlands who has been involved with the Conservative Party for many years. She's an Oxfordshire County Councillor for Whitney, where she lives, and she stood as Conservative Party candidate for the Oxford East parliamentary constituency at the last general elections. Welcome, Suzanne. I gave a brief introduction of your political career, but would you like to introduce yourself for our listeners?
1: Yes, thank you. Indeed, I am a public health registrar now, nearing the end of my training here in the West Midlands, but as, as you've already stated, in terms of my background, I also have been involved in the Conservative Party um, for a number of years now. I've been a member for seven years and became active more recently in the last three years, putting myself forwards for public office. I'm currently a county councillor and also a town councillor where I live in Whitney, West Oxfordshire.
0: And you're a medical doctor by training. What made you decide to specialise in public health?
1: That's right. And actually, my experience before I even went into medicine was in public health and epidemiology. And actually, my whole uh, love of epidemiology came from an undergraduate lecture that I attended looking at the measles epidemic. And I found it absolutely fascinating, that connection between time, person and place, our classic triad in epidemiology. And it was really that that inspired me to go on and specialise in infectious disease epidemiology and then train in clinical medicine. And I think the natural progression was into academic public health. Again, looking at those important determinants of disease and, of course, still thinking about the importance of time, person and place.
0: You're also an academic trainee lecturing at the University of Birmingham and have a keen interest in air pollution. I seem to remember you also travelled to China for some of your research projects on air quality. It all sounds very exciting. Could you tell us more about this?
1: It is exciting, and I think what is very exciting is that uh, air quality, which I've worked in, on for a number of years now, has shot up the policy agenda. I think in recent in recent months, and I'm very pleased to see that i mean air pollution is the single largest environmental risk to health worldwide responsible for approximately seven million early deaths per year and yes the work is international the reasons for that are that the greatest burden disease happens to well it does occur in lower middle income settings including China, and also those very rapidly industrialised settings. So, for example, outdoor air quality in those very large conurbations. The city that I visit in China, called Guangzhou, had had tremendously rapid population growth to a current population of over 10 million residents, and accompanying that very rapid adoption of motorised transport. So, very high emissions levels and my policy interest is actually air quality interventions to reduce pollution and that has taken me to East Africa so Rwanda Kenya Uganda Tanzania where we have projects looking at interventions to address both indoor and outdoor air quality and I think from those I've learned a great deal that actually can then be brought back to UK policy
0: and going back more on the focus of this episode, political activity and advocacy. Where does your political passion stem from? Is yours a political family? What role models have you had?
1: I think I'm an unlikely politician, and it certainly was never something which I grew up aspiring to go into as a career. The reason that I stepped into politics really came from my my medical experiences, working as a junior doctor in hospital and experiencing some of the challenges, I mean, both the the triumphs and the shortcomings of the health service. And it was those first sort of formative experiences of clinical medicine that really led me towards thinking about health policy and some of the more difficult decisions around healthcare delivery. And it's that that really led me to think, actually, should I be stepping more into decision-making role and led me into shall I say, political life, albeit at a local level at that stage. In terms of my background, um, I have I have, I have no, no one in my family who would obviously uh, state that they are political as such. And um, in terms of role models, I mean, I have to say, I did grow up under a, a Thatcher government. And for me, that was quite formative. I have a clear recollection of my father losing his job when I was four years old and the impact that had on our family with two young children and that was in 1984 and through the enterprise allowance scheme my parents were able to set up their own small company at home and I'm pleased to say 30 years later that, that company is now providing over 100 local jobs and I think through that story I developed the certainly my alignment with core conservative values and those of aspiration, ambition and opportunity. And
0: where are your classmates in university, as keen as you are, to engage in representative activities?
1: That's an interesting question. And I, as an undergraduate, certainly, although I was interested in political activism and lobbying, I wasn't actively participating. I thought it was important to train as a scientist and felt that, for me anyway, that was my primary aim at that time however those around me were engaged and I think that there was a level of um, activism and I think that that is I think it's important and I think it's a very historically that's been a very important part of being a student and I think exploring one's own political alignment at that phase as well is is very important but I myself uh, as I said I came into it a little bit later on.
0: So as we said, you're an elected councillor. Much has been said of the radical change represented by the move of public health to local authority. And given that you're wearing both hats in two different contexts, what are your thoughts on this? Has it been a positive move for public
1: health? So I'm a, obviously, post-Health and Social Care Act public health registrar, so I've really come into public health training from where it is now, where compared to where it was before. And yes, in my two roles, I have been able to see this from a different perspective. And I've also been able to experience many of the benefits. I mean, for example, when I was a registrar in a county council setting, I was able to liaise with planning teams, those working in other areas of both voluntary and third sector activities, which I think are very important to link up with public health. I think one of the the major changes, and that which I hear discussed at length, is obviously it has become inevitably in a politicised environment. And again, I see that from the other side. So the, the role in terms of thinking about where does the political balance lie, where the volatility is, where the process of collective decision-making can actually impact upon final policies. However, I think that that structure does offer tremendous potential advantages for public health, and I think those have been exploited more so in some places than others. Certainly where I'm at Oxfordshire County Council as a councillor, I have seen some excellent joined-up work between our, our public health teams, our planning teams. For example, I do a lot of work on cycling and walking strategies, and I think that is tremendously beneficial to really take a much broader approach about health beyond the NHS.
0: And have you ever encountered situations where you had to deal with a conflict of interest because of your double role?
1: Certainly. What, what I've struggled with in my political life is the firstly the lack of an evidence base and secondly the very fast-paced pressured decision making. Whipped votes are another issue, so for example I may be put in a situation whereby there'll be a, a whipped conservative vote on a particular issue and I often think can I put my name to something if it doesn't necessarily from a values perspective for public health, can it be justified? And on a number of occasions, my solution in that has been to be to abstain from that particular vote. But at the same time, I've also seen the opportunity to apply much of what I have learned in public health. So, for example, what is the opportunity cost of a council works team taking on a new project? What's the equity of provision for a new leisure service? Should we develop a new car park for a local employer or invest in a cycleway to ease traffic congestion? And these are questions which we as councillors are constantly debating and considering and I think for that actually having the public health insight has been tremendously beneficial.
0: I know this is a broad question but what have you learned during your work as a representative? How was the experience of door-to-door campaigning for example?
1: I really enjoyed door-to-door campaigning and I have learned a great deal I think about people from all sorts of backgrounds, walks of life. I Think it's fascinating to have a window into people's lives and I've been out campaigning in very deprived areas for example blackbird Lees in Oxford through to very affluent areas in leafy west Oxfordshire and it's always interesting to hear what is on people's minds and to be able to try and take on their issues in some ways it's quite similar to clinical medicine you are there to try and solve the problems. sometimes you can't which is difficult but ultimately I think what a a representative should be is is out there in the community talking to people I know last year at the general election I knocked on 18,000 doors in five weeks so you can imagine how many conversations we had and do you think
0: activism union representation advocacy should have a more prominent role in the training
1: yes I do see a role for that certainly I've seen the influence of it as a, as a councillor and decision-maker. An example would be a petition delivered to full council with media coverage. I've seen the impact that that type of activity will have on decision-makers and the way that they approach an issue. And certainly I've seen that with air quality and more recently plastics would be good examples from Oxfordshire. And I do think that, yes, advocacy, lobbying is a really important process and engagement with that decision-making process. If we heard more about obesity, for example, I think there would be a great deal more pressure for our local decision-makers to act. However, I qualify that because I still obviously do think it's really important that public health professionals are able to understand an evidence base or able to synthesize that evidence and construct an argument around scientific evidence. That's very important.
0: Do you believe that recent generations of medics and public health professionals do understand the importance of actively engaging with the political process? So, for example, do you believe that public health professionals are becoming less or more vocal, less or more independent, and less or more able to take a political stand as advocates of the population since the move to local authorities?
1: I think that it is a very different environment for public health. And certainly from, from those I've spoken to who were engaged in public health in an NHS setting have had some frustrations at the some of the sensitivities around operating in a political environment. Now, at the same time, though, I think that the potential benefits outweigh um, those disadvantages and actually I see a tremendous scope because of local authority really being the place-based decision maker controlling a very large local budget that actually there's a tremendous amount of opportunity to influence uh, health and social outcomes and well-being and ultimately that's what we want to do.
0: And do you think the public health professional community is doing enough to advocate or to train others how to advocate and influence big policy direction changes like setting limits for emissions or combating climate change?
1: I think it could do more as a collective community. Certainly, I think we can learn a lot from those very strong Lobby groups, Client Earth being a classic example of the successful litigation that they have brought against the UK government and the, the traction that they have gained, the media and policy coverage. I think for air quality we can also learn from that and we're beginning to see now the power that can come with citizen science and backing up citizen science with the collective public voice. And I think it's really important that public health leads the public voice and provides an advocacy route. So yes, I do think there is more scope.
0: As a politically active epidemiologist, do you think we are in a post-truth society where facts and evidence have a much lesser weight in terms of influencing politics? Or is it something else that's going on, maybe to do with the media, to support, for example, anti-vaxxers, climate change denialists, homeopathy, etc.? Even when, like the case of the measles epidemics we have in the West Midlands, uh, can represent an undeniable and severe effect.
1: Absolutely, I think we are in a. I think we're in a very different landscape than we were five years ago. And yes, social media has played a tremendous part in that, in terms of the extent and reach of, we'll say, fake news. I know it's now become a phenomenon itself, but it is. I think we need to be aware that there is tremendous scope for factual claims which may not be backed up by evidence and it has an influence on our field. I think we need to be a lot more robust and clear and engage with it. I think that it is impossible now to to not engage, for example, with social media. And I think we need to be using it to get out our own facts and back those up with a narrative because ultimately people will relate to an emotive narrative story.
0: Exactly. What can we do then as public health professionals to contrast this? Should our training provide us with more tools?
1: I think there is scope and I think that the, again, it's something where public movement and social media technology in a way has progressed more quickly than, for example, the Faculty of Public Health training curriculum and I do think there are unmet needs in that regard, which I hope that, you know, I hope the faculty, I certainly know they're aware of that. And I really hope that the training itself will evolve to meet that. And it's not the only professional field, I would say, exactly the same for both clinical medicine and, and indeed other areas within science.
0: And talking of facts and evidence again, how did you wake up on the morning after <laughs> Brexit knowing that much of the reasons in support for the UK leaving the EU were and are still, let's say, not confirmed by the experts.
1: Yes, well, I was a a vocal Remain campaigner and actually involved in leading the Remain campaign in Oxfordshire. I was awake that night. I was at the count watching those ballots stack up. And it was was a difficult night, it was. And I think it sent a sort of ripple of um, shock through the country. Um, and not just among those who were remain campaigners but I think there's you know there's been a significant impact. I think in terms of uh, health specifically I think it's tremendously important now in terms of where we are with the negotiations that we do ensure that the health and well-being of the population and the services serving those are protected as much as they possibly can be. And I think it's very important now that everything possible is put in place to avoid a no-deal exit scenario, which would concern me as being particularly damaging to the field of public health.
0: And you're a keen and effective debater, and I invite our listeners to go and watch the recording of the debate you delivered at the Oxford University Debating Society, I think alongside an array of heavyweight political speakers. Do you think that being able to put forward an argument well, craft a convincing narrative and debate in public, are fundamental skills that should be part of the training curriculum of public health registrars? If so, in what ways could these skills ideally be developed?
1: That's a really, it's a very interesting point. And yes, I do think that crafting an argument should be a core, really a core component of public health training, because essentially... It's all about communication and I think that the public health community has got a really important role in translating the evidence into something which is able to be understood by the public. And it's something which I myself have had to have help training with. Um, We as politicians tend to talk a lot about infrastructure. I've needed to reframe that and talk about better roads as an example. And I think it's really important that we're able to clearly convey quite complex concepts. And I do think that in public health, we often can um, step back from that. In terms of the training, I think an advocacy component could include some of those important skills about both forming and articulating an argument. And certainly, I think that would be a welcome addition to training. So.
0: Next uh, next month, Debating Club in Public Health. And uh, this is probably a curveball, we didn't discuss this, but um, speaking with a fellow registrar, I heard her complain that some some of us confuse debate, discussion, disagreement with undesirable conflict and actively tend to avoid it. Is conflict always bad, or especially in our profession, should we learn to embrace it as a creative force in democratic societies?
1: I think conflict is... A very healthy part of um, a multi-party democracy. And I think that we as a professional body would be risk being naive if we are unable to accept and engage with that. However, I you know I do think that conflict should be done in a constructive way. And in fact, I think some of our best decision-making comes through multi-party dialogue cross-party policies and certainly I've seen that and some of our most uh, effective policies have come through cross-party consensus and that's something which I always strive to try and achieve is, is a cross-party consensus. And I think the wider that that dialogue can be with the inputs to it the better policy you get as an outcome. So yes I do think conflict can be healthy but I think it needs to be managed. What I don't do dislike is the extent of abuse and intimidation that has now infiltrated some of our political activity and i very much welcome in fact the current um inquiry into the extent of that abuse and indeed looking at ways in which to legislate and protect because i do think it can go too far
0: and what advice would you give to a public health trainee that wanted to gain some political advocacy experience and skills Is it necessary to go part-time to cover certain roles?
1: I would say go for it. I think that public health actually is a fantastic grounding for entering into political life. It gives you a very broad range of skills, as we've already said, and very useful insights and understanding into handling data, being able to respond quickly to a briefing, for example. I found it's been a, a really quite um you know mutually beneficial skill set in terms of actually time management yes that is a challenge i mean i've been relatively fortunate to be able to stay full time here partly because i'm on a university contract and that has specific requirement for public duties and actually it's something which is in, encouraged to be in public life obviously for those working in a local authority environment there is understandably restriction upon political activity because of the requirement to be neutral so i think it is it does require some careful planning and some careful decisions to be made but i do think it is possible to combine the two and actually ultimately i think it's helped my public health training and apart
0: from let's call them extracurricular activities what rotations and placements have you enjoyed the most
1: I think for me it would have to be being here at the University of Birmingham. I've been really fortunate here, I've had a fantastic team to work with. We have had some tremendous experiences working with our international partners and that has been very challenging but very enjoyable to work with our and particularly our partners in East Africa. I think probably a highlight for me also would be the students that I supervise for example an undergraduate medical student who went out to Rwanda to do a project. Tremendous challenges, field work but came back having learned a great deal. And for me, that was really satisfying to see.
0: From your experience at the frontier of policy and reform, and also as a local BMA representative in the past, where do you think the profession is heading to? Do you agree with the pessimists that described public health as a terminal patient? And can we do more than prescribe palliative care?
1: I think public health has something of a identity crisis at the moment and I think that has I think that's partly been changes to the professional training context but also the environment in which it's working and I think it's has struggled with that I mean I still find that very few people are aware of what public health is what public health does when actually we know that over 80% of health is determined outside the medical setting And I think it's got a crucial role. I mean, I think it's got an absolutely critical role in terms of the future sustainability of the health service. And, you know, I do welcome some of the recent emphasis, shall I say, on preventative medicine. And I think that has to be all-encompassing. But I do think the profession could do a lot more to articulate what it is about. We all know what a heart surgeon does. We all know what a brain surgeon does. I think that galvanises the public's imagination. I think we could actually do that for public health if we worked a bit bit harder to achieve it.
0: I agree. And you also did a PhD during the training. In your mind, should public health training be more academic than it currently is? What do you think of the rumours that even the public health masters are now being put in question in some regions for cost savings reasons?
1: I think public health is inevitably and inherently an academic subject. And I think those core principles... That one learns during the academic phase of training, whether that that be through a master's in public health or, as I did, an MSC in epidemiology, I think they're really important. And as I said, you know, we we come back to those regularly again and again. So I I do think that is important. I think increasingly we're seeing people come into public health who either have a pre-existing master's qualification, or who have, for example, you know, completed higher academic training, and I think that the training program needs to enable the flexibility of academic training as well. But, I mean, yes, it is, you know, we are, I think we are fortunate to have a master's in the training, but I do think it's a very important part of the training. And I think it's important that that is retained, but I think we still have flexibility for other ways to acquire those skills.
0: And now on to some more, uh, let's say, traditional (laughs) questions that we ask towards the end of every interview. In which baskets would you recommend that a registrar in the training put their eggs these days? Should we spread our bets or instead focus and specialise?
1: I think that's a, that's a challenging question. I would say that um, spreading one's bets in public health at the moment probably enables one to then adapt to where it's heading better. Um. And that is probably a way to be ready for where it's heading. I think that horizon scanning is really important at the moment. So looking at where is our next big question in public health. And, and also those areas which we, from a policy perspective, are currently really behind. So, for example, social care, which has really been somewhat stalled as a policy. And our ageing population, in fact. So I'm always one that encourages horizon Scanning, But I think it's important during training to get that broad skill set.
0: And again, as we ask all of our guests on the podcast, where would you advise the registrar spend their study budgets? What events, conferences or activities do you recommend?
1: Well, I would say that it's fantastic to get a policy perspective. I think that often we in public health tend to talk a bit too much to each other. And I'd say use those opportunities to go and seek events where you can both speak to policymakers from the other side, but also speak to those in other teams. So, for example, most recently I used some of my study budget to go to a Westminster policy forum. It was, the topic was air quality, but I was the only public health person there. I was the only clinician at that event. There were transport policymakers, there were urban planners, there were spatial experts, there were exposure assessment experts but what they needed was a clinician's voice and a public health voice so I'd say use it to go to those types of events and and I myself have found I've learned so much from speaking to those who look at things from a different perspective
0: and we have reached the end of this episode is there anything else that you would like to say as a close
1: i think just that from from my own experience through the sort of two dual roles that i've held I think that it's always been important to keep one's core principles in place and core values and whenever I am faced with a decision to be made inevitably I know that as a decision maker I won't please everyone and that has been the case but I always revisit my core values and in terms of where is the need where can you deliver the best for the most and revisit public health, you know, how can we make our um, country a better place for people to live and be healthy for longer. And I found that going back to those core values has been really helpful to me in, in both of my roles. And I hope that many others will think about public health training, come into public health training and enjoy that for the future.
0: Thank you so much, Suzanne, for your time, for giving us such a detailed and nuanced and even deep insight into your personal journey into public health and your political career. And thank you all for listening. Um, we will have an episode next month again. Probably this will be the August and the next will be September. So do follow us on SoundCloud. And if you have any suggestion for topics or people we should interview, or if you yourself want to be interviewed, do please comment on the SoundCloud page of the TIFF podcast. Thank you.